9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Read that far from God's holy word. We struggle with complaining. It's a sin. It's not a minor thing that really just represents bad form or bad manners. It's evil. It comes from wrong hearts, wrong minds. We need to work at this. We need to repent and turn uh, to God. And we need rescue. We need salvation, grace. So the gospel of Christ Jesus, the gospel of grace, is the cure for complaining. The title of the message, Cure for Complaining, it's the gospel. It's the grace of Christ. It's Christ himself. So today we'll look at three different medicines, as it were, spiritual medicines that can be applied to cure our sin of complaining, our habit, our deeply ingrained habit as uh, sinners of complaining. Number one, rejoicing always. Number two, praying with thanks or thanksgiving. Number three, thinking correctly. Christ died and rose again, giving us the cure for complaining. These are three ways of applying the medicine. Number one, rejoicing always. I say rejoicing is like a pair of glasses by which we reinterpret the world. Uh, Rejoicing is a pair of glasses by which we reinterpret the world. It replaces the complaining glasses. If you want to look at it that way, you can find a way to complain about almost anything. But to replace those glasses with rejoicing glasses helps us to look at things by rejoicing. It's a struggle. This isn't going to be easy. It's convicting, and yet it lifts us. Joy in the letter of Philippians is interwoven here like a golden thread. The the whole book is filled with it, not just this passage. And the context is amazing. Uh, Despite being surrounded with sinners and struggles, Christ calls his people to rejoice invariably, come what may. And the book of Philippians, the uh, Christians in Philippi serve as a great example. The the church in Philippi had struggles, serious, long-standing, difficult struggles. For one, they're apostles in prison. Don't take that lightly. Number two, they had selfish people and disunity within the congregation to overcome without Paul there. And then the believers in Philippi had to learn to stand against the enemies of the cross that we read in this book and many false teachers surrounding them. Those are just to mention a few of the bigger issues. There's lots of things they were dealing with. And yet, joy is a constant theme of Paul and a constant theme of instructions for the believers in Philippi as he's writing this letter. So our natural question, we come to life with reality. Uh, we come to life understanding what our country is going through, what we ourselves personally go through. Our question is, how can believers be expected to rejoice 
when we have so many struggles and sinners around us, including ourselves? How do we do this applying of medicine number one, rejoicing always when complaining seems fitting for what I'm facing, what we are facing? And the answer, part of the answer, is rejoicing is deeper than being happy about something. Rejoicing is deeper than being happy about something. No one commands us to feel happy about problems. That's not what verse 4 says. That's not what he says anywhere in this letter. It doesn't say be happy about it. It doesn't even make sense. Who can command you to feel differently about something? You feel how you feel, right? Rejoicing is treasuring something bigger than the problem, putting that problem in its proper context, factoring in the things around that issue and not focusing solely on that anymore. Rejoicing is thinking about something deeper than what you had been thinking about. Uh, Rejoicing is thinking about something more ancient than what you had been thinking about. Rejoicing is assessing the value of something that engulfs the complaint. We're sinfully complaining. We don't have a problem with our situation. We have a problem with our interpretation of our situation. We haven't taken into account other factors that surround our situation. So in other words, the problem is not in your life, all the things that have been happening to you. The problem is your interpretation and how you're looking at what has been happening to you. Genuine Christian rejoicing is not inward-looking, How can I make myself more joyful? That's not it. Joy is not a result of examining my life and seeing how everything is making me feel. Joy is not taking the temperature of what I find as I look around and taking the temperature of my relationships, my health, my looks, my abilities, my career, my calendar, my bank account, my accomplishments, and it's not the totality of how everything's making me feel right now. That's not... That's not genuine Christian rejoicing. What Paul is writing for us here in verse 4 when he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, is that we can learn to rejoice anyway. We can learn to rejoice always. And the question is how? And he's saying it is grounding ourselves in the Lord. Notice words 2, 3, and 4 of the verse. In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Grounding our joy in the Lord, period. Well, then what do you do about your situation? Well, instead of complaining about the situation, we rejoice about the larger picture around the situation and put our minds there, as he'll go on to say later. Let me give you four examples of how Paul did this in Philippians. To have the larger picture around a problem. Example number one. How did Paul rejoice about a church that had fighting in it? Philippians 1.3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So example number one, how did Paul rejoice with a church that had fighting in it? He broadened his context, thank God for the bigger picture that they joined together with him in partnership in the gospel, and we will get through these disunity struggles. Example number two, how did Paul rejoice when he's in prison? Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel in every way. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So the bigger picture is not, I'm in prison, 
not guaranteed meals. It might be freezing cold in here. Not focused on himself being in prison and what that means for his body and creature comforts, but instead focusing on the kingdom. And why would God put an apostle in prison and how does that advance the kingdom? Beginning to see that unfolded, the larger picture of those who had served as guards were coming to salvation in Christ Jesus, and that means kingdom advance. The bigger picture, in other words, is how he rejoiced when he's in prison. Example three, how did Paul face the prospect of his own death? Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that not setting a bigger context around the fact that he would lose his life, perhaps? To understand that God is on the throne, that God will be taking him home, that it's gain for him to go see Christ face to face. Fourth example, how did Paul coach the church in Philippi to rejoice despite opponents and enemies of the cross around them? Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The fourth example, how did Paul face uh, the church in its context of opponents and coach them forward? By saying we have the honor of standing with Christ, setting it in context. Yes, there's opponents. Yes, there's people against us in the church. And yet we have the honor of standing for Christ who will himself be victorious. Just four examples. There's more, actually, in the book of Philippians. But he summarizes this in Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Philippians 3, 1. So again, rejoicing is like a pair of glasses that you put on to reinterpret the world instead of the complaining set of glasses. Then we move on to the second point, a second spiritual medicine to um, serve as an antidote against our complaining problem. And that is praying, and specifically praying with thanksgiving, verses 6 and 7. Complaining is telling your friend, telling your mom, telling your spouse, telling your neighbor, telling your hairdresser, but never telling God. That's what complaining is. Prayer is telling your complaint to God. And you say, wait a minute, you're telling me to complain to God instead? You're telling me that's what the Bible says, complain to God instead? Yes. The Psalms are filled with the psalmist, a believer, coming to God with a concern, coming to God with a heavy heart, coming to God in literal danger, and asking God to help with this crisis situation. I have a complaint. Doing so respectfully, doing so asking and pleading God to do something about it, but coming to God with a complaint. Complaining to God is prayer. But then we mix it in with thanksgiving, and we start to change. If you notice in those psalms of complaint, they start to change. At the beginning of the psalm, it's complaining to God, how long, O Lord? And by the end, it's praise the name of the Lord my God. They transition by the psalmist changing. And so Paul is putting us onto this beautiful uh, cure, this spiritual medicine. We start out with a request, a complaint, if you will. That you use that language in court, don't they? The complaint. It's a legal plea to the court saying, I have a problem, I'd like the court to address my problem. You're coming to God respectfully saying, I have a problem, I would like the God of heaven to address my problem. It's complaint, it's prayer. It starts out as a request, but by the end it's praise and thanks because you're connecting yourself to the living God. 
It's rejoicing in the Lord. You're coming back to Him and communicating with Him. That's what he could say here in in verse uh, 6 towards the end. Let your requests be made known to God. You could put the word complaint in there. Let your complaint be made known to God. Prayer is the opposite of sinful complaining because sinful complaining comes from an ungrateful heart and it's addressed to the wrong person. Godly complaining is coming to God with the concern, the request, and letting it be made known to God in a respectful manner to God our Father. What if you work toward your dream for years and years, and what if your dream is gone in an instant? What you think about that, what you say to yourself about that, what do you say to those close to you about that identifies how you're dealing with that problem. And a Christian ought to come to the Lord and say, I have a big problem. I don't know how to handle this. How do I get through this disappointment in my life? Prayer is one of the spiritual medicines against complaining. If you put your hopes in something and it doesn't work out, what then? How are we to respond? What if the pain keeps coming back and coming back again? You have dreams that die. You fall in love with someone. They didn't feel the same way back. You wanted a promotion. Someone else got it. You got passed over again and again. You tried everything to live at peace with this person, and they insist on war or at least distance. Difficulty. And you go to the Lord, and you ask him to provide. What the coach couldn't provide, what the pastor couldn't provide, what your father and your mother and your boss and your friends could not provide, they could not give to you. You come to the Lord. You let your request be made known to the Lord. And if you're not doing that, what are you doing? You're complaining. You're finding an outlet for that request. Instead of letting the request be made known to God, which is the only right thing to do with your desires and requests, you're doing something. And the other something is wrong, and it's sin. You wake up in the morning, and you want to complain. And you need to repent of that and come back around and let your request be made known to God, Philippians 4, verse 6. Before cell phones, when I traveled, I didn't travel a whole lot to meetings here or there, usually for the OPC, I would take my travel alarm clock, and I would go to sleep holding my travel alarm clock. I shouldn't. It was dumb, but I did it. I do dumb things sometimes. And I would wake up with a sore hand because my hand was gripping that alarm clock. So in the morning, I'd have to let go again, and my hand would be sore. And I think that illustrates our problem with complaining. I wake up in the morning, and I have to let the whole thing go again. How did it get back in my hand? How did it get back in my heart? How did it get back in my my mind, my mouth? Why am I talking about the things that yesterday I admitted were complaining and that yesterday I admitted I shouldn't be saying to these people? I should translate them into prayer. I should be talking to God about it. I should be patiently waiting for God's response. And I'm all stuck up on this complaining again. I need help. And this is the gospel news, that Christ died and rose again to give me power over my sin of complaining, to give you power over your sin of complaining. Now, I get very concerned for how we speak about prayer, and here I am saying to you to pray, and this is what Paul is saying. This is what God is leading us to do in verse 6. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think people 
mistake prayer for self-redemption. I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to redeem myself. I'm just going to pray. Like it's some kind of magical thing that you can do to yourself, by yourself, quite apart from the Lord. Just pray about it. If I'm in a burning building, I pull a, a collapsible ladder out and I climb down to safety. I don't need to fire a truck. I don't need to fire a department. I don't need a ladder or truck. I'm in a building engulfed in worry, engulfed in complaining. So I, I pull out my prayer, a collapsible ladder that I have conveniently, and I just uh, help myself. No, no, you don't redeem yourself through prayer. I'm not giving you some large set of assignments to weigh you down and you go out and you make sure that you pray enough. It's never prayer by itself as if prayer by itself is the answer. No, never. That's not gospel. That's not scriptural. Instead, it's prayer as it connects us to Christ. Let your requests be made known to God. Rejoice in the Lord. It's this connection to the Lord that changes everything for us. We need his help for our hearts. We need his help for our words. That's the exchange that takes place. When we give to Christ our burdens, when we give to Christ our complaints, when we give to him our our requests, our prayers, our supplications then we are connected to him and he gives us the right way to look at those problems again. He changes our outlook because he changes our hearts and minds. That's what happens in prayer. And when he says, with thanksgiving here, he's saying a a distinct kind of prayer. It's the prayer that has a specific aspect of speaking to God to express gratitude to him. You know what that is? That's setting the larger context again. Thank you, O Lord, for all the good things. And I just have this one request. (laughs) And you have to set it in context. I'm aware of all the other good things. And that's not for God. God's well aware of all the other good things he's given you. That's for you to remind yourself, to me to remind myself that all these other things have happened. And it starts to soften our need for this to happen on this times table, on this schedule, And in these ways, we're turning it over to the God who knows what timetable is best, who knows what sequence to give these answers in prayer to. But the other three verbs here, outside of thanksgiving, if you notice them in verse 6, by prayer, supplication, requests, the other three are just stylistic differences. Just as, as Paul would say, these are the various ways that we come to God. He's not saying now, if it's a Tuesday... And if you're asking for things with regard to occupation, then you use the prayer. But if it's Thursday and you're having things with regard to family matters, then that's a supplication. No, 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 no. He's not giving us some complicated way that we have to follow all the rules of prayer. Prayer is beautifully uncomplicated. It's coming vertically to God. And there is some different verbs here, and you can study those, but please don't be distracted by that. This Paul says here, understanding and hearts and minds, he repeats four times the word all. In verse 4, always. In verse 5, everyone. In verse 6, in everything be in prayer. In verse 7, with all understanding. He's encompassing everything. And he's saying it's not complicated. This is quite simple. Take it all up to God. 
And the importance of the words about prayer is not some unique motion, not separate types requesting, nothing like that. He's spraying words across here to give us a bigger lesson with a larger idea that we now can't miss. Prayer is the important thing. Go to God with it. Complaint is not going to God. Prayer is. That's the fundamental difference. It's not that Paul's teaching us certain theological components that are essential to understand about the verbiage about talking to God. No, that's a human court. You have to have a lawyer and you have to speak in legal ease in order for the court to hear whatever you're saying. That's human stuff. Our Savior wants sinners to come to him. And prayer is brought up here as medicine for our complaining. Jesus gives himself as the healing for our complaining hearts. The variations in words for prayer are not meant to distract us. They give us emphasis. Complaining has no place in the believer's life while prayer belongs in every place of the believer's life. How do we separate a complaining person from his complaining? How do we separate an angry man from his anger? How do we separate a greedy person from their greed? How do we separate an anxious woman from her anxiety? This is tricky. This is delicate. This is internal. Things going on in our spiritual lives. And God is coming to us through Paul and he's saying, Christ has come to give us grace for all of that. Christ can separate the complaining person from their complaining. Come to him and ask for exactly that. Praying with thanksgiving is one of the medicines for complaining. The third one, we're moving on to point three in verses eight and nine, thinking rightly. By God's grace, we can replace bad thinking with good thinking. It's not to empty our minds altogether and have nothing in our minds. That's not prayer. That's not a Christian approach to life, to God. We don't medicate. We don't empty our minds. We fill them. We fill them so full with the right things that the bad things are squeezed out. Maybe you complain, for example, about the decline of morality in America. Well, let's address that one. You need to think rightly about that. If that's what your heart is filled with, concerns about that, if that's what your mouth is filled with, if I talk to you and all you say is the decline of morality in America, let's talk about that. Okay, can we talk about that? As an example of what he's talking about here, the sin of complaining. In order to think rightly about the issue of the morality in our country, you have to address it from Scripture. How about this passage? How about the book of Philippians? How about our author, the Apostle Paul? And you have to set it in context and think correctly and remember the moral decay of society in the first century is the same as the moral decay of society in our century. This has all happened before. A long time ago. And the same God who's on the throne, the same God who blessed, the same God who allowed decay again, the same God who blessed is the same God who's on the throne now. And somehow that should already be helping (laughs) to set it in context, to think rightly, to think correctly about the problem. You say, well, that's not quite true. Oh, yes, it is. The first century, a time when Paul was living and writing these very words, it's a preview of the decline we're finding today. Homosexuality. Sexual abuse, bestiality, kinkiness, self-indulgent luxuries, brutal violence being presented as entertainment, and the rise of violence in the society at large. I will stop there. You get the point. It really is a preview of what we're facing today. How can we stop complaining? It's a legitimate concern. 
Christians ought to have that concern. What should we be doing with it? Class, back to point two, bring your requests to God. Make, let them be known to God. Say, brother or sister, will you pray with me about this? My heart is so burdened about this. And we face these issues the same way Paul prescribes in verse 8 to get our thinking correct about them. What do you ponder? You, some young people have this be real app. So you're supposed to take a picture of yourself, take a picture of your surroundings at a certain moment of the day whenever they say. If we were just doing the be real for your spiritual life and freeze frame right now, what is your mind, what's rattling around in your mind right now? At any given moment in the day, I just say, right now, what's going around in your mind? That's the issue. Whatever's going around in your mind all day is going around in your heart all day and it's coming out of your mouth all day. And Paul has a list for us to replace whatever junk it is that's going around in our minds all day. And when we read these lists, it's surprising to us how he wrote them. You know why? Because we don't write lists this way. If I write a list for the grocery store, I don't write, honey, please buy bread. Honey, please buy milk. Honey, please buy eggs. Honey, please buy chocolate. I don't write that way. I just write the item, bread, eggs, milk, chocolate, right? And yet Paul writes out in Greek each time the repeat of the command. That's why it reads in verse 8 so unique in English the way it does. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, and so on. Why not just say, as most of you would say, and honestly, if you turn in an English paper to your professor, they would also say, just say, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Why keep saying, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is? This is Holy Scripture. Not a word of it is wrong. So why does God do this? Why did Paul write it this way? The feature seems to already engage our minds we begin to ask ourselves, what is honorable? Whatever is true, what is true? And our minds already start to gravitate towards the things that fit the description, the list, and we're further exhorted to keep our minds on those things when he gets to the end. Think about these things. Keep on thinking about these things. Stay there. It really helps against complaining. It's part of what God's redemption is. He gives us prescriptions. He gives us assignments. He gives us lists of things to keep us out of trouble. It's part of his redemption. It's part of his graciousness and his mercy to us. So the Greek word could be translated, as many things as are, as many things as are true, as many things as are honorable, as many things as are just. And no list could be complete. It's not a complete list. This is a suggestive list. These sorts of things... Keep your brain on. Keep your heart in. It's clear that Paul has given us the impression that the scope of the list is all-encompassing, especially when the last two items in his list widen the lens of the camera to whatever we are examining, where he broadens it out as broad as possible, and he says, if there is anything worthy of praise. In the previous phrase, if there is any excellence, any and anything, this is very, very wide. And the actual terms in the list are not common in Paul's written vocabulary. There are certain phrases Paul keeps using in his 13 letters. There's words in this list that are not common for him. It's as if he's thinking up this collective and comprehensive set of things for us to focus on, and he's zeroing in on it for us. 
And he uses this, this phrase, think about these things, with, from logizomai, from which we get our word logarithm. Logarithm, it's a mathematical term. Logarithm is the way things work in the world. Understanding why it turns out this way, because it typically does. Figuring it out. We have the phrase, if you don't like the logarithm, or you don't like me teaching you Greek words or Hebrew words for that matter, think about this phrase and how common we say it in our culture. Do the math. It means the same thing. Do the math. For us to think through why it is that way is what he's encouraging us to do. Gives you a sense of computation. When our modern phrase, do the math, it's saying in numerical terms, give a specific and implied result because of what? Because God is on the throne. That's what's true. Because doing the right thing, even when the other person didn't do the right thing, is honorable. That's why. And it always turns out better when you respond honorably. Those sorts of things, figuring it out. In other words, this little list will change your life. To actually do this, to actually live there, to have that as the approach then will change a lot. Verse 9, Paul says, imitate him. Uh, Paul was a Christian, walking the life of a Christian. It's not just to let our minds dwell on good things, verse 8, but then verse 9, also practice these things and practice them in the sort of way that Paul is living them out for you. You want a sample? There he is. Paul changed. Paul used to be Saul. He's giving us hope. We can change. We used to be complainers. If I were to interview the people closest to you, the ones that work next to you, the ones that live next to you, the ones that keep bumping into you, and I said, how does this person do with regard to complaining? What would they say to me? That sort of idea that we used to be complainers, but there's hope for us to change. Paul changed from a selfish, sinful man who was putting people to death, Saul, into this beautiful image of Christ apostle, Paul. And then he says, in addition, verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Here he is intensifying the exhortations from verses 4 to 8 by tying verse 9 back to verse 7. Did you notice? The peace of God and the God of peace. Verse 7 and verse 9, like twin promises. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, verse 7, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul wants us to notice is that it's not just the peace of God, but also the God of peace himself who will overshadow us with his care. We don't enjoy this peace when we don't have this abiding care of God with us unless we're practicing the thoughts and deeds covered in verses 4 through 8. This is what he says. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's in the doing that we find God. It's in the living this way that God meets us there, that we discover that God is there. What Paul wants us to notice is that we need to live out the obedience to God's commands. These are commands. God is not commanding that we self-redeem. Please don't misunderstand me. That once we fix, rescue, and redeem our own selves, then God promises he'll be near us with his presence. No, no, that's not the lesson. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God has come near to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8, that God redeems us from self-trust to trust in him. God redeems us from self-righteousness and our own efforts to receive the righteousness of Christ given to us, imputed to us 
received by faith alone. God redeems us from laziness and lack of effort and motivates us to diligently work at obeying him and changing these things. What Christ demands of us, Christ gives us. That's rescue. We have a redeemer. We know all this. What we know is that the peace of God comes on the pathway of trusting and obeying. So what have we seen today? Three medicines, three medicines for us to heal us of our sin of complaining. The medicines all come to us through Christ's cross and his empty tomb. The applications repeat the sermon points. Number one, rejoice always. Number two, pray with thanksgiving. Number three, think rightly. It's the pair of glasses by which we reinterpret the world. How powerful is this? In 1555, Nicholas Ridley was burned at the stake because of his witness for Christ. But what you might not have heard is that the night before Nicholas Ridley's execution, the night before, his brother offered to remain with him in the prison chamber to be of assistance and comfort to him overnight. Just put yourself there in a moment. You're going to be executed in the morning. How will that night go for you? His brother is saying, I'll be with you, brother. Nicholas Ridley heard his brother's offer and he declined it. He replied, he might like to go to bed and sleep as quietly as he ever did in his life. I submit to you that he could have spent the whole night complaining to his brother and we might have well understood him doing that. But the gospel of Christ is so powerful that it equips a man the night before and all the night before to sleep soundly because the God of peace was with him. He could rest in the everlasting arms of the Lord to meet his need. What are you facing some certain morning? What's the stress point later in the week? What things are you dreading? How do you get past this? How do you face that without complaining? My friends, there's power here. This is actual spiritual power unleashed through the gospel of Christ. Like Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The God of peace himself with you. You are with me. Do you believe that? There's power there to help us with the sin of complaining. Jesus came to be with us. Emmanuel, as we enter the Christmas season, God with us, right? After his death and resurrection, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20, and in Colossians three fifteen, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts.